once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Vincent Price reading The Raven. And I just let out a supreme beam of love and togetherness and like magic you appeared as pure energy and a true connection. Welcome to At The Canton, a little platica about new and old movies by two Chicano guys, one from SoCal and the other from NoCal. I'm Aztec Parrot, the poet, the Dodger popper and fan, the asphalt jungle street DJ, the three-timing padrino, and now host of At The Canton. That's the with the with two E's. And across the, the uh, Zoom room is, uh, from me is a Giants fan who says he's from San Jose, but rumors have him growing up in Campbell. I don't want to utter his name out loud, so I'll whisper it instead. Pinchy Pancho Cardona. From the east side of San Jose, what up, everybody? Glad to be here. Giants fan making a run for first place because we got that championship blood. It's April, so we know what happens in April. Giant domination. So I'm uh, looking forward to talking about yeah. some movies today. Yeah. See, that's why I don't want to say his name. <laughs> talking all that trash. <laughs> but, you know, we know we're here. We, we could talk about Dodger Giants game all fucking night, but we're here to talk about movies. Okay? I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk about the, the 11 and 3 start. I'm not going to talk about that. But since April is National Poetry Month, we've decided to focus our selections on movies about poets or poetry. And so we always do three three movies. And the, in the new category, our films released within the previous three years, we have The Kindergarten Teacher. Uh, next, in, in our mature selection of films released within the last 20 years, we have Poesia Sin Fin. And finally, in our classic section, our movies over 20 years old, we have chosen to review The Raven. And we heard the opening uh, recitation of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, done by the late and great Vincent Price, 
who, uh, of course, if you know if you've been hiding under a rock, then you probably hadn't heard his uh, voice in the Thriller recording by Michael Jackson. But yeah, the Raven. Why? Why? This is one of your choices, Pancho, Pinchy Pancho. Why did you choose the Raven? Um. Well, let me just get into the, the the synopsis, and then I'll get into my reasons. So, just real quick, just to bring everyone up to speed, um, the Ravens, the Raven brings classical horror actors together for an updated take on the genre. As Erasmus, played by Vincent Price, must confront a brotherhood of magicians he has long eluded to take his rightful place as a grand master of wizardry. Let, let's play the second drop, and then you can you know you can. Let's say the second one here. You want to play the yeah, second one? You go. But can't you see he has no idea what happened? Clearly he was the victim of some diabolic mind control. Uh, that's nonsense. Scarabus? Scarabus? Yes, my dear. Yes, it is to his castle that I must go. I am going with you then. But she can't help us. But what other choice do I have? What if Scarabus should attack again? Well, I, I better get something too because I don't want to catch a cold. <laughs> I mean, right there, that it sums up what the entire plot is. I mean, the great thing about someone like Roger Corman is that the plots aren't going to be that uh, detailed. They're not going to go that deep. But I think, when we watch uh, the other things we're watching today, we realize that sometimes you don't want, you don't need to go that deep. And in terms of this kind of film of what it's trying to do, um, you know, it's just a, a battle between two men between um, Erasmus and Scarabus. I like the way that kind of line sets it up. Scarabus, Scarabus, yes, I have to go. And then Peter Laurie, Peter Laurie talking about, um, oh, I guess I'll go. I guess I'll catch a cold too, or something like that. And he just drops all these little lines in there. So it's it's a very thin plot, but I mean, the stuff that these actors bring to it, because remember, it's also not only just um, uh, Vincent Price, it's Peter Laurie, a very, you know, a very heavy, looks like Peter Laurie's drunk half the time on the set, uh, Boris Karloff, and even a very, very young Jack Wilson. Yeah, well, let's take a step back and, and, and talk about Roger Corman because he. Okay. What 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 can you say about Roger Corman? Go ahead and reread um, your, your sentence. Yeah, he's been he's been the known as the 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 Pope of pop cinema. Uh, you know, in the sixties, you know, everyone's trying to do avant garde things, and he's doing these very kind of, you know, almost they 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 relate to him as his films as almost comic book. I mean, now we understand comic book as being superhero. But in terms of comics, just, you know, basic plots, basic heroes, you know, being challenged and having to overcome. So that's how Roger Corman's making films. He eventually goes on later on the most, I think, um, in the 80s, he does a little, he, he adapts a little shop of horrors for the film. So that's the kind of stuff he's doing. Well, he has, what he's, he's taken like this very serious piece of literature yeah. And he's expanded the story on it. In fact, if you read the original, yeah, Aramis is in there in, in his his yeah. library and he hears the rapping and stuff like that. And that's how the movie kind of starts off. But then uh -huh. it, it takes this weird, weird turn where 
he's like he starts a conversation with a raven and it's like oh. a raven sort of like a raven with a with a with an accent you know which was then eventually we find it's going to be peter laurie's character so he starts off going immediately to the absurd and it just you know and it just keeps flowing from that point on did you think it was absurd well i you know the thing about it, I, I think that with Corman, it turns out being absurd. He just doesn't realize it, Maybe because he's he, he's an accomplished filmmaker. Yeah, uh-huh. and because I mean, if you even look at the opening sequence where they they he does the recitation. That's the, the what we heard at the beginning of the show, the Vincent uh-huh. Price. He does the recitation, and then he he builds this psychedelic collage of, like if the guy's on shrooms or something. That mixes all this technicolor with oceanography and or photos or, or film of the ocean, and then it turns into this dark, twisted type of uh, uh, gothic, the house on the hill. Uh-huh. That's where we run into Vincent Price. But yeah, so yeah. But he does that transition like in about three minutes, which is actually pretty incredible. I mean, the the first novel thing I like I said is. When you look at the, I mean, you, you look at the story. I mean, it doesn't look all bad, and it does seem a little bit absurd. But he's got these great actors. Like you know, when I when I looked at, it, I go, how did he get all these? I mean, amazing actors and these old villains from the nineteen thirties and forties um, horror films to come out and and do this kind of stuff for him. So I thought that was pretty amazing. They can continue it and transform the genre. And the genre, I mean, it's not it's not that thirties forties. Uh, kind of suspense there's a lot of humor and i think like someone like peter laurie brought a lot of humor to this and i guess peter laurie improvised a lot of his lines in this and, and you can tell he's just dropping lines and they're they're having fun with it and i really enjoyed it a lot yeah in fact the, the second clip that we played i mean right after it ends then in comes the, the young jack nicholson and there winds up being like these about four or five exchanges that you could tell that are completely improvise on the spot they're just they're almost like doing these improvisational exercises on camera which is i mean but you know but i thought about that i thought about like you know what what would you do if you had you know the iconic boris karloff you had access to him Uh with the whole project being driven by vincent price and then almost at, at that point almost out of obscurity you know, Peter Lorre, because the guy's not working at that point. Yeah, you could tell he hasn't worked. <laughs> yeah, and he's just drinking every single every single scene that he's in, he's like drinking. Yeah. He's like, oh, he takes the milk by accident. He goes, ah, milk. <laughs> in, in fact, when, when I looked at I, when I looked at this film, I, I was I was looking at it on Tubi's, uh-huh. which was the the the, the app that you can watch a lot of movies on there, but you have to like sit through the commercials, yeah. which is fine because that kind of creates that whole uh, old atmosphere of watching older movies, like back in the in the seventies. You know when you uh-huh. had to hook up your antenna and bam, 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 and when you watch a movie, it had commercials in it. So, but I would always try to be conscious about where they make those breaks because sometimes they do a very sloppy job and they'll break right in the middle of a dialogue, and then when they come uh-huh. back. You're like, wait, what, what? You know, you're trying to figure out. But this one, I, I call it the Tubi breaks. Uh-huh. And the first one, 
it was almost like the classic period is like the classic Vincent Price setting. But then part two, I, I called that right after the commercial, I called that Peter Laurie's lounge uh-huh. because he opens up and it's almost like he's doing this lounge act in front of the cameras. Yeah. I also liked about it was um, this idea where, like I said, it, it follows all the tropes, right? That we, we got to leave the house. We got to go, we got to go do battle. We got to go investigate. But also it leads into the whole point where like um, a scarabus all of a sudden at one point has to relate his whole plan. This is what I'm trying to do. And this is, and Leonora is saying, oh my God, you're like, you've planned everything. And of course, you know, it's that moment where the villain has to reveal everything. So, I mean, all the tropes are there. Everything's in place. They're not, I mean, in terms of plot, they're not doing everything anything different. But I was just really engaged at that part just because of the acting, the, the improvisation was good. And the little the little fight scene between Scarabus and Erasmus at the end it goes on a little bit too long. But like I said, there's nothing, I mean, they, when you do something, when you're, I think when you're a good filmmaker, you can do, you can follow these structures or these tropes and you can make them work for you. You know, sometimes they don't. And I, I found this this one instance, you know, it could have fallen down, gone by absurd and be like, ah, this is just too predictable. I'm going to walk away from it. But even right. though I do think it was predictable, I do think you stuck with it. Roger Corbin kind of reminds me of the dude in, in uh, the producers, the, the, the uh-huh. Zero Mostel plays. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of like, I mean, he's just making these movies, you know, because some someone's investing in them. In fact, I, I see that this kind of his his work that he does, I kind of see it as maybe like the the start of the kind of evolution of, of like um black exploitation films. Kind of yeah. the absurdness and you know, and get into the surreal and stuff like that. But you know, it was um it you know there is improvisation inside the film that you said it was good and and I just tend to disagree. <laughs> I think it's it's yeah there's improvisation in there yes is it good no but it's done by accomplished actors so they're not like it's not a complete fail it's like you know maybe like a C minus or you know B plus at at best. Um, well, they like, said the level of hostility wasn't written into it. The level between. Uh, Dr. Baldo and his son Rex for Jack Nicholson. A lot of it, as they said, was because those two actors just didn't really like each other. Yeah, and, and you can see someone. I mean, there's like there's there's not a lot of chemistry anywhere in this. Uh-huh. The, the chemistry between Peter Laurie and and um, Vincent Price's character Aramis. There's I don't see that. You know, I mean, these guys what probably know. Dr. Baldo, do you think Dr. Baldo, Peter Laurie? I, 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 because he's the one that actually has relationships with all three, right? With Erasmus, Scarabus, and his son. Would you, do you think there was chemistry in the between in all his relationships? No, <laughs> no, no. I, just, I don't know, man. Th- then the movie doesn't really work for you, right? Because it's Peter Laurie in, in that regard. He's the nucleus of the film. He's the one that, that either moves a plot ahead or it completely falls apart with them. So I thought he did a great job. I thought it, it held up well. So I, I don't think you can like remove Peter Laurie from that equation and still say it. Yeah, well, but you know, I, I think that I think the problem is is the script. And I think uh-huh. the problem may be that he gave too much improvisational license to the actors to do this. 
but uh-huh. it just when you when you're doing that, it just says that it just says that you don't have enough material in your script, and you're just trying to like make your way to that point. And whatever yeah, comments, I mean, I could see that too. That you, yeah, you, it's pretty thin, and let, let your actor take over. But at the same time, too, I, I I see it as a way of of having these good actors, and why not? Why can't I adapt it? Why not? You know, why shouldn't I let them run with it? So this, I don't know. I, I yeah. This 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 film reminds me of like the Three Stooges films uh-huh. that you know that they would do with Curly Joe, yeah. After after Curly had left and Shemp uh, the uh-huh. Shemp die or something something like that, but that that's what it felt like. It felt like those those uh, Three Stooges movies where you know things were just kind of like you know, yeah, we can make a movie, and they you know <laughs> they make they stretch out a, a try to put together all these little action short shots from the Three Stooges. I, I could I could actually watch I could actually watch it again the Raven again so maybe there's something inside there that I did like I don't yeah. know and he goes on to do other adaptations of other um, Edgar Allan Poe and other texts so I mean this is not you know a one and done deal I mean this becomes a project for Corman to do other movies like this so I mean I I think it's a great way of thinking about you know, literature about reimagining it, how it would play out in film or even in genre. So, I mean, it's a good bridge to do, you know, to experiment with things. So, and it's not doing anything kind of lightly. I mean, it reminds me of a lot of like what um, uh, graphic novels were doing, started doing now with adapting classical literary works and transforming them into graphic novels. I mean, he was doing it in the sixties, uh, transforming a classic liter- literary text into film. Um, and reimagining them as film or other things too. So anyway. Okay. Hey, next time that you pop off like that word t-shirt that says I am a librarian. Because <laughs> it shows. It shows. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go on to the next, the next uh, um, let's go on to the next one. The next movie. The next movie is our new movie, uh, kindergarten teacher. Kindergarten teacher. It's a, a white female New York kindergarten teacher played by Maggie Gyllenhaal whose self-esteem and confidence as a poet is shattering in a continuing education poetry class. As a kindergarten teacher, she spots great sensitivity and promise in her five-year-old student. And at one point, the teacher begins to record her student's spontaneous poetry and present his work to the class as hers. The positive criticism she receives helps her understand how talented this innocent uh, child, or how talented this innocent child is, while convincing herself that she must protect that child. Eventually, she goes to unreasonable lengths to protect uh, his poetic talent. The bull stood alone in the backyard, so dark. I opened the door and stepped out, wind in the branches. He watched me, blue eyes. He kept breathing to stay alive. I didn't want him. I was just a boy. Say yes. Say yes anyway. Wow. I like a lot the breathing to stay alive. What what do you guys think? I'm just trying to understand the assignment. I thought everything was supposed to be observational and about things that we see every day. I mean, it's, it's great, but this seems like an exercise in surrealism. You don't have to be literal with my assignments, you know? 
These are just the exercises that spark your creativity. Well, it might have been helpful to know that beforehand. Okay, well, I'm sorry. I apologize. But I find it really interesting that you just went your own way. Really. You know, sometimes poets, like bulls, they should be stubborn. I like the poem a lot. Just wondering why you wrote it from a boy's point of view. I don't know. Because she can. That's what's interesting. It's, you know, it's interesting to see things from a new vantage point. The 2018 R-rated release is directed by Sarah Cola Angelo. And along with Gyllenhaal, the kindergarten teacher includes Mikhail Baryshnikov's daughter, Anna Baryshnikov, and from the animated series Undone, Rosa Salazar, Michael Chermas, and of course you could hear you heard the voice of the the poetry instructor there, um, Gael Garcia Bernal, who plays the, the, the course of poetry instructor. So, you know. What did you think of the movie? Let's start that way. What did you think of the movie? I mean, well, I mean, we're talking about plot. This is, I think, I mentioned earlier. I mean, it, you know, I mean, this theme about plot and what you can do gets carried over to these other other two films. Is what I, I was thinking about as we're going along. But you know, you ask yourself, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to take your viewer with this? And all I felt all throughout it is just taking me down, down, down into places that I don't really want to go. And hopefully there'll somebody will lead me back out. But, you know, like, you know, why is this movie being made? Why are they dragging me down? And why is there no light at the end of the tunnel? Because it just gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And I'm thinking there's no end game to this. This is going to end bad. And, you know, for what reason? Like, why, why as a viewer do I need to watch this? You know, the, the the character of the kindergarten teacher, um, she is also a mother. So, oh. I mean, this whole thing about just you know, the, the attraction to a small child is, you know, it's something that's already been satisfied within her. In fact, oh. her kids are now high school. They're ready to go to college. They're long, you know, long. They're almost 18, almost adults at that mm-hmm. point. So she feels that, you know, this, this is about, in fact, you know what, talking about poetry workshops i was in you know i was in 10 million different poetry workshops you know for both undergraduate and graduate and i rarely ever see this type of scene i I don't think i ever seen that type of scene i was kind of like i had no feeling that this was you know part of i was i never felt that i was in part of a a poetry workshop especially ran by gael garcia bernal who I understand, like there's a scene inside there where he's like, you know, he's, he's going to get down to Bone Town with, with uh, Jim Hall's character. And she's sitting on a couch and he's bent on his knees. So yeah. you can imagine what's going to go on next. But the reason why they did that is because uh, Garcia Bernal is like about five or six inches shorter than Maggie Gyllenhaal. So uh-huh. it was all just an illusion there. But um, but the, what this movie was about that it reminded me a lot of poetry workshops is that for some reason, uh, women, in, in, a lot of, in a lot of cases, you know, white women, they struggle with the issue of their fertility and when their eggs run out. 
In fact, I used to see that all the time, like these women who are over 40, they were always writing poetry about their eggs. There's something in their eggs. It was like Easter themes or eggs or jutting hips, but it all had to do with fertility. And once again, here's another movie about a white woman who's tripping out about her fertility. Her children are leaving the house. She falls for this little child. Who's a talented child? Who knows that? Maybe that maybe. Okay. okay. I, I, I got to dis disassociate myself from your mansplaining. <laughs> I get it. No, I am not going on record in support of de of Aztec parents mansplaining. So, you're gonna go down on your own on this one. <laughs> I, you know, this was just another example of, like I said, of, of, of these things that that I witnessed. That I've, I've been through. I mean, it isn't like you know, this is stuff that I'm making up. I can, in fact, yeah. I think I even have a collection. It's called the Eggs Collection. <laughs> I, I think I, I have that, but. Um, I know, but I mean, see, you, you brought up two examples, one of a woman whose children are going to leave the nest, another one, you know, um, the sense of the, the number two, the one that you're discussing right now, you know, the fertility coming to an end, not being able to, you know, physically give birth anymore, so you're going to try to fill the void. But at the same time, too, I mean, the way it gets played out is so destructive, like, yeah, you know, I can understand, you know, trying to like latch onto those feelings and we see it happen but it just goes downhill for her in both instances and in, in all you know in all instances and it, it just keeps sinking and sinking to where she's just crossing so many boundaries and i'm like when is it going to end yeah she claims to be an experienced 20-year you know kindergarten teacher and uh -huh. She's decided that she is going to like, you know, just completely destroy all those concepts of boundaries as a teacher that she's trained yeah. and licensed and entrusted uh -huh. upon by the public. She's just going to toss that all away because her kids are, her family's uh -huh. falling apart and she tried her best and she wanted uh -huh. to raise a, a, a Mozart and there's like this, you know, poet and who knows? I mean, the kid may be just hearing all this stuff and, you know, from some type of poetry record that his uncle plays for him or something, you know, just start reading to him and yeah. he just remembers these poems. You, you never know. You never know. The, that stuff never gets explained in the movie, yeah. which is like, there's a lot of loose ends inside this movie that just, you know, for me, but the, the, the downward spiral of it, I mean, that's one of the things that kind of attracted me to this film because that downward spiral is still a pace. Oh. it's just not a positive pace. If we would pair this movie up to something like a dear Liza, the dude, his wife kills herself and he goes into that spiral and starts snort or starts uh, um, sniffing gas with those kids. He's like a really wealthy stockbroker played by the dude, oh, the, the actor who died from Boogie Nights. Not Burt Reynolds. <laughs> we were all happy when Burt Reynolds died, but not. But when this guy died, it was just like, "Oh man, a real talent died." It just has a, it just has a negative emotional change in the viewer, which is what you try to accomplish as a movie, a movie director. I don't know. I'm not gonna like. I kept on thinking if they made a movie about Mary Kay Letourneau. Not gonna watch that one either. I mean, I, I'm I'm not interested in going down that road. And also, you know, like her going down, just you like you mentioned, the boundaries that get 
that keep getting crossed over and over again. Like, yeah, it eventually got to the point where like, is this woman seducing this boy? Is that what's going on here? I felt at the very end, I felt like that's where if this movie had another five minutes in it before the police got there, then that's oh, what you was gave away. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't Spoiler tell you. But you can imagine, like, like audience, when I tell you there's nothing good that happens, you can trust me on that one. You can, you know, fill in the holes of what's yeah. going to end up happening. Yeah. It's spiral, downward spiral. But yeah, once again, you know, from a, a you know, woman, uh, how, how many, what was the percentage of white women who vote for Trump? Even in the Trump second election? <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So this is a this is a, a movie for them. Um, I didn't learn anything. Uh-huh. I already knew. I didn't learn anything new. Yeah. Okay. It just it was just refreshing my memory about this movie, which takes us to the last movie, the mature movie. The this is Poesia Sin Sin Fin. Go ahead. Go ahead. Pinchi Pancho Cardona. Uh, Poesia Sin Fin. Um, it's uh, it's Alejandro Hodorowski from Chile, and if you know, he's had a long, amazing career. I don't know how long he's endured, but you know, in terms of what he's doing these days, um, just when you think about that, if surrealism is a thing of the past, he still brings it out. I mean, he was he must have been trained surrealist. And he uses it to, you know, reconsider it, to use a form to consider the, his new film as the backdrop for reimagining his life. Uh, but he's also able to incorporate uh, his other trainings in theater and poetry to really give this nice artistic um, edge to his films. If you don't know who Jodorowsky was, he was born in Tocopilla, Chile. And then he moved to Santiago, Chile. Then that's where his begin his his big his serious artwork really began to take place. Um, he later on goes to France, and he, you know, he knows Andre Breton. He does uh, mine in Marcel Marceau's um, theater group, whatever whatever my my troupe they were in. He was also in there. And this particular film, which was something notable, was that. He the cinematography was done by Christopher Christopher Doyle, and so those of you who know Christopher Doyle, the long partner with the Wong, he shot Wong Kar Wai's famous films. I mean, I, I didn't know this till after the film, and it, it just all made sense just watching it. But if you play the clip, then we can get um, a better idea about uh, what's going on in this film. Has escrito todo esto? Todo, todo. Por invisible te desprecian, diamante perfecto, la muerte de la que huyo, corre sin prisa al lado mío. Pero hay poemas hasta en el piso. Esta obra maravillosa se va a perder. Todo se va a perder. Nuestras almas están buscando. No importa. Los sueños también se pierden. Y nosotros mismos poco a poco nos disolvemos. La poesía como la sombra de un águila que vuela no deja huellas en la tierra. Un poema llega a su perfección cuando arde. Yo no puedo soportar de ver arder esta obra de arte. Te propongo algo. Salgamos a caminar. 
Vamos, vamos, vamos. ¡Al ataque! Alejandro, ¿estás de acuerdo conmigo? El lenguaje nos han enseñado transporta ideas locas. Así es, querido Enrique. En lugar de pensar correcto, pensamos torcido. Debo aclarar que también caminamos torcido. A mí me parece que caminamos en línea recta. Sí, pero llegando este camión que nos obliga a torcer... ¿Qué hacemos? Los poetas no estamos obligados a nada. Continuemos en línea recta. I, I really like that soundbite because these are two poets talking about what poetry can do. If you notice, they do use the word arde, which is uh, to burn or to blaze. And it's it's repeated several times throughout the movie. Um, it's also a word that uh, Pablo Neruda likes to use. So I'm not sure if it's a Chilean thing to to use these kinds of words, to use arde. But um, what ends up happening is that these two poets decide to go on a walk and they decide to say that poetry should be in a straight line. It's going to go through whatever is confronted. It's not going to stop. So I, I think about these kinds of poets and artists, and especially someone like Khodorowsky, whose sole training has been in the arts. I know in the film it is contrasted with, uh, uh, with Parra, who was teaching math and doing um, poetry on the side. But for Hodorowski, it's always been about art. And for, you know, we don't, it's rare to see somebody like that who does solely art. So these things of going in a straight line, um, plowing ahead with your art, it becomes, you know, your sole purpose. And I think that's, you know, this film demonstrates that is that he had no other purpose. He was going to plow ahead at no matter what costs. And in terms of uh, the kind of film that was produced, it wasn't one that was uh, a, a chronological biopic. It was more of a dream, right? It was more of a surreal experience about how do I reimagine where I came from, not where, where I came from, but what my purpose was. So I thought that was very well done, is merging those two ideas. The thing that I love about film is that, I, I, think, of, I, I think of two quotes, one, not direct quotes, but I think of one where they say, you know, the film is the, the, the director is the film. You know, that's like, they're, they're given everything. That's like their child. That's them. That's them, you know, the celluloid. I think about that, how it applies to this movie, because the contents of this movie is all about him, which is fine. I mean, and he actually appears in it. I mean, like three or four times he makes these, you know, he, he works as like this kind of, you know, I forget the call, it's like a griot type of, you know, figure. The meta narrator kind of inserts himself. Yeah. And the other the other thing that I that I that I think about that I love about film is that it is a full expression of everything, of every single sense except smell. That's a, the work of food, but uh, texture. Maybe you don't feel it like under your fingers, but audio, you know, the audio part, the music, the dialogue, the, the concepts, uh, the visual, um, and also, you know, just like and also the emotional part of it. So it's like this because it's this, this whole almost like a climax. Climax, I think both film and theater are both climaxes of, of all of the arts put together stage design, cinematography, and 
sounds and music and everything. Yeah. So in that sense, I mean, how old is this guy now? Is he like in his 90s? He's, he's like in his late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, he's pretty up there and he's still working. And he hasn't he hasn't tapered off. I mean, you know, usually old directors usually have long, very long, unedited, no dialogue shots. And they're just kind of, they're out there. But this one I thought was still engaging. And now, like, you know, like you're, saying, you're, you're talking about the film and theater. I, I, I do like he was able to merge both. And I do like when the stage hands would come in and pass stuff to characters on film, you know, because it's still a production. I did like to see um, the cities covered up with old sets, right? Like you're going to redesign a city as a set and just these paper sets that would show up, these cardboard sets that were painted I, and they covered buildings and they did it. For, they covered the contemporary train. I just thought they were just great ways to reimagine everything, especially when you're talking about your life and, how to best reflect you know these are memories they're not i'm not trying to recreate them for real um so far in the relationships i think again i think he took some liberties and so it's it's not a literal expected to be a literal uh, interpretation of the events of his life i mean there these are very fleeting moments that he's he's very getting at yeah but it but it does follow some of the actions on his life i mean he he, he yeah. leaves he leaves Chile at a time where there's a lot of repression that's going on, and the resistance is, has been built, and they, you know they're, they're and he jams, he splits. Yeah. Uh, there's also um, there's also a lot of presence of penises in this film, and I not that I'm shocked about it, but it's always like you know when when males are you know talking about their you know their stories, there's always something about their penis always winds up in this case i mean there's a lot of penises inside here but none of them are active they're all just like just hanging around so there's a lot there's a lot of hanging brain going on inside this movie um and then there's you know it's all a circus so he puts all of this stuff all all his circus training i guess his father was also involved with the circus too uh, along with all his poetry along with all you know just all these actions and i mean even but it's all built around a poetry community. That's that's the one thing that I did love about this film was that these are like you know they're all poets, you know they they're yeah. either the tragic poets or the virgin poet or you know but there's all poetry. So it's it's all just like and they even there's even one scene where they're going to I think after reading they're going back to someone's house to go party, and they're all like all mobbed up in one like little ball. There's probably like fifteen of them just like within four or five feet. It's like inches just breathing on each other. So they're walking as like this one little entity. And I, I just, I thought that, you know, I thought that was cool. I thought that was cool. Yeah. One thing that's always struck me about like these, these poetry movements in Latin America is that they like to give themselves names, you know, and um, I forget the exact name that he gave the, his group in Chile at this time. Uh, but they have their own name. I know, like when, when you read Bolaños' Savage Detective, he also talks about the the uh, something surrealist writing group in in Mexico City at the time, and they've all come out and decided to have this name, and they're going to make distinct from other movements. But it seems like all of them, you know, one way or another, it's all about giving the finger to the establishment, and you know, or giving the finger to conformity. 
So ultimately, I think they all have the same goals and would take on different names. But um, I don't get the feeling like United States. I mean, like, you know, you have the, I'm not saying poets here don't give the finger to conformity, but in terms of, you know, organizing themselves around, you know, specific groups or specific names, trying to distinguish themselves from their contemporaries, like, oh, those are what they're doing. I don't know if it's the same. What do you think? I mean, you were more involved in these workshops and these writing circles than I ever was. Well, I, I think, you know, I think for those who read poetry and write poetry, like myself, yeah. to find other people is beautiful. It's just a beautiful yeah. connection. It's a beautiful expression. In places like Chile, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a, a point in this history where poetry was not important. It's uh -huh. always been important. In fact, they even had a movement there, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, where young people, the, all they would do is speak in poetic languages. Uh -huh. It was like this big trend. You know, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna like court someone, then you're gonna like speak to them in in, in poetic uh, memorize memorizing poetic lines. Pull yeah. from the, the, the wrath of, of all the poetry that existed and be able to carry on a conversation like that. It was very gameful. Um, also shows that you know you're very well well read, and you also have a good memory. So, mm -hmm. but I don't see that type of movement here unless you know we want it. And I'm open to including people who just on the street they're reciting rap songs. Yeah, it's kind of like the same thing. I remember I, I remember I once had a neighbor who they her her and her husband got into an argument. All they used when talking back and forth to each other was lines from, from soul songs from the 70s. Uh -huh. And so they just carried on this conversation just using these, you know, like, if loving you is wrong, I don't, you know, I don't want to be right. <laughs> Stuff like that. So it was cool. And, and, you know, and it happened in Chile. And in a sense, this movie is a reflection of that because yeah. almost all the dialogue is, you know, in a poetic form is itself well, very poetic. The script is very edited and streamlined to include only the poetic stuff. There's no unnecessary language in this film. There isn't, there isn't one word that doesn't belong to this film. It's the same thing with the imagery and stuff like that. And also the, the trip down into the um, surreal is all, you know. And that's how, that's, I, I believe that's how he wants to be he wants to be remembered for his life is that he was a surrealist and the stuff that he did. I mean, he acted upon it. It's no crime to think like a surrealist, but it could be a crime to, you know, to, to act it out. And that's what he does. He does a lovely crime with this film. Yeah. I, I do like how you mentioned that Chile has a, a strong history of uh, a literary tradition a poetry tradition as a form of resistance, right? Because we always think of Pablo Neruda, um, we're talking about Holodowski right now, but there's also Victor Jara, right? The, mm -hmm. the the great singer from the 70s who was murdered. Um, there's also, what was her name? Maria Luisa Bombal and Isabel Allende. So, I mean, it, it just has, um, Ariel Dorfman, I think is from Chile. It's just such a strong, you know, has such a strong literary mark in, in South America that we tend to, I'm not sure if we overlook it, but it's there and it's very active. And Hodorowski has been 
covered a whole span, but he did go to Europe, um, you know, in France for a good amount of that chunk of time. I'm not sure if he's still there. I don't even know if he's back in Chile, but um, I, I do like that one scene, right, where he's like almost with like a, he's with a mind clown at the end. And um, it looks like a Marcel, Marceau kind of face. But then, you know, way to incorporate is, is different things that are going, like I said, different arts. And also the end scene, I mean, which I don't know, I was completely confused about. No, spoiler, he, spoiler alert. <laughs> but okay, this is not a spoiler alert. The main character who plays a young Alejandro Hodorowski is his grandson, Adan Hodorowski. And then he, he plays his father. He got his son to play it. Um, what was his name? Uh, Brontis Hodorowski. So it's, I mean, we're talking about uh, surreal images. I mean, having these, having your offspring kind of replay you, replay your dad, and kind of come together at the end, that whole blurring between, you know, where does, um, where does distinction happen and where do we like converge? Because I think a lot of this movie is about convergences, about people just, you know, blending into each other and, and creating off of each other, so. Um, in terms of the, I think the only thing I didn't like is a lot of it is the art for suffering. Whenever on the art for suffering, that guy, I, that kind of gets on my nerves when people are like, I'm going to die to be an artist and whatevs. And the other thing I don't like is, well, the whole performance aspect. I mean, you called it a, a lot of the dick pics that are going on, but uh, all this idea of like, you know, performance art always leads to the culminating moment where someone gets naked and then pour shit all over themselves and bam i'm here i've arrived and that shit kind of like oh i've seen it one too many times and yeah. i wish performance artists would try to get over that and not go that route anymore well it's it's a it's a mark of developmental it's a developmental yeah. mark for a, for an artist to like you know go completely nude you're you're, you're out there you're, you're letting it out there and so yeah uh -huh. at some point they they all have to do that the the one the the thing that i liked about was his use of the bar of Edie's bar? Uh -huh. It was. I mean, I, I've walked those same steps where I walk into a bar and it's like everyone's dead in there, and like uh -huh. I'm, I'm like the only life that's walking in, or me, or whoever's inside there. You know, we're the only two lives in that. You know, inside a dead bar. But I, I like that. I like the way that he used that. Just kind of like to ground. It almost kind of like you know, okay, re reground, gather back up. It's like the plans are drawn up there and let's act upon them. Yeah, I mean, that contrasts well to the idea of like, where do we make art? And, you know, because now we think that we have to be in a workshop. We have to have, it has to be at a school. Someone has to teach a workshop. But, you know, a lot of these places, you know, you would go to your bars or people's houses and that's, you know, you'd force yourself to make art. So, yeah. Another thing I loved about this movie was the music. Was the music. I mean, it's... You can tell that he, you know, he, I mean, he went deep into his collection and selected a lot of beautiful music or had beautiful music created for it or just, there's just beautiful sounds throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah. And that's one thing about The Raven. If we're going to link two movies together, The Raven yeah. also includes a lot of really the type of music you, you that helps the scene go through. So, like in, in there, in both of these films, there's moments where they have like cartoon music. Yeah. Where they actually follows like the movement of the actors. I think it's a little stronger happens in the Raven, but it also happens inside here too. And so 
yeah, I just I, I liked. I mean, it was just a treat. It was just a treat all around, uh, visually, you know, emotionally. You know, just kind of see it all. If you don't understand what happens at the end, that's fine. I think yeah. because for the filmmaker, he doesn't know what's going to happen at the end of his life. There's only one thing he's sure that's going to happen at the end of his life, and that he's going to reach death. And so, yeah. but this one is, you know, scene fiend. All right. Okay, well, that's going to do it for, for this uh, episode of At the Canton with uh, Aztec Parrot and Pinchy Pancho Cardona. Um, and May, we'll see everyone back here with an, uh, another, another podcast regarding three films that we're going to select. We're just two Chicano guys. One from SoCal, one from NoCal. Science Dodger fans. And uh, <laughs> sometimes we don't get along. But most of the time we do. All right. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye.